Okay, we are still looking at some key phrases in the Lord's Prayer. Now, we're not going through and looking at the entire Lord's Prayer. We're looking at some key phrases, and we're looking at the meaning behind it. What was the Lord thinking, and what was he teaching his disciples, and the Old Testament background to the Lord's Prayer? What was going through the minds of the disciples as he was teaching them this prayer, and what prompted them even to think, to ask Jesus to teach them to pray, and what to pray, and why did he choose these things? And we've already looked at our Father, which art in heaven, and we looked at hallowed be thy name, and today we're going to look at this phrase, thy kingdom come. And thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, primarily, we're focusing on the phrase, thy kingdom come. And trying to put together for our, our own benefit what probably the disciples would have been thinking when, when he said, pray this way, thy kingdom come. Or... It's an imperative, may thy kingdom come. Why did he ask him to pray that way? Well, in order to refresh our minds, let's turn to Luke chapter 11. We've been reading each Sunday out of Mar- uh, Matthew chapter 6, but I thought, well, today, let's go read Mark's account. I'll get in all the Gospels in here. Let's go to Luke's account, Luke chapter 1, 11, verse 1. Well, I'm going to get it. This is, this is really... Whew. Luke chapter 11 and verse 1. And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he seized, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, When you pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then back in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, we find that phrase again, thy kingdom come. Well, what we said earlier, and that there... If there was to be any sense of meaning to this prayer that we could dig out, as it were, that we ought to be able to find some kind of uh, biblical background for why Jesus taught them to pray this way. And so we've gone back to the Old Testament to see if there could be any connection. And quite frankly, we found significant connection between this prayer and what Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray for. Especially as we thought about, or as we have actually seen, and we will see again today, 
the connection between the exodus from Egypt and God's promise to deliver his people in the future in the same way that he set them free from Egypt. And he would gather them together into a future land under a king in which would prevail righteousness and peace. And of course we can, well, I'm I'm going to get ahead of myself if I keep going down that road, so I'm going to stop there for a moment. And um, uh, talk about this this Old Testament uh, passage because you know ultimately God's ideal and His plan is to unite His people under one banner, Jew and Gentile. He is going to bring them together under His headship, where He is Lord of all. And he is working in this day to cause that to happen. That's why we can look at events going on in the world and see the hand of God moving and see him bringing things together. And of course, in this day and age, faster and faster, we see it, uh, this melding together of things and events that will culminate in this one great event. Now, of course, it's not a, you know, we can say it collectively as one great event. Yet on the other hand, there are many events that will happen that will then be uh, what we would call the, the sum total of all these events will culminate in the one event of the Lord's bringing his people together. For instance, well, I'm, I'm still getting ahead of myself, so I'm going to back up again and, and start all over. <laughs> Let's go to Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4 and verses 1 through 8. Now, when you're looking for a phrase like this, thy kingdom come, you're going to be very strained to find something like this in the Old Testament. And it appears to me that this is about as close as you you are going to get. Um, and But that makes it significant. You know, if there was only one place, you might think, well, that's only one. But on the other hand, if there is only one, then that makes it a very important passage. And we better find out what He's talking about there. So let's read this, this passage. Micah chapter 4 and verses 1 through 8. He says there, But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains. Now we looked at that some time back, but we were focusing on on the uh, metaphor of the word mountain and its significance with regard to a kingdom and the location in Israel, the mountain of the Lord's house. He says, it shall be exalted above the hills and people shall flow unto it. 
In verse 2, he says, And many nations, or Gentiles, shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth uh, of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among many people, and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now, it's interesting. I was just thinking as I was reading that verse. Now, you know, when you think about future events, and you think about the Lord's return, and the millennium, and, you know, sharing in the rule of Christ, and life being lived out, or, you know, on the earth during that 1,000-year period, um, what's it going to be like? Is it just going to be all like farming? You know, you would get that idea here, but yet there's going, is there going to be factories, you know, uh, building things and, you know, what, what, what's exactly is going to be happening as far as day-to-day activities like we have here in this age? And, and, on, and I got to thinking, well, if they're going to beat their swords into plowshares, and by the word, that word plowshares is just in, instruments for agriculture. So I'm supposing that it could mean quite a few different things and not just a plow, because obviously if you got a plow, then you got something to pull the plow with. Um, but if they're going to melt these swords down or these instruments of warfare, then there must be some pretty big foundries where they're going to be able to melt these things down and turn them into positive, productive machinery of some kind for harvesting what's to come. As a matter of fact, it was, it's, it's Amos that tells us that in that day, the agricultural production will be so great and abundant that while the reapers are out in, in the field, the plowmen are going to be coming right on behind them. And they, they, and just, you know, or as the plowmen are plowing up and they're planting, the reapers are just going to be right behind them and things are going to grow in such abundance, and everything is going to be so rich in terms of abundance that you can't keep up with it, and there will be plenty. So in verse 4 then, he says, But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts hath spoken it. Just a representation that they will be able to go worship the Lord, you know, in their their private meeting with him under a vine or under a green tree without any fear. But that couldn't be said always for Israel. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts hath spoken it. 
For all the people will walk, every one, in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. They may walk in the name of their God, he says, but we will walk in the name of our God forever and ever. In that day, saith the Lord, will I assemble her that halteth, that is, that's lame, and I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted, and I will make her that uh, limps a remnant, and her that was cast off a strong nation. And the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. And thou, O tower of the flock, that being a metaphor for Jerusalem, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come. Now, what would, would the it be? Well, the it would be the rain. Back in verse 7, the Lord's rain. It shall come. Even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, the word come is very near in context to these words, dominion and the kingdom. And he's simply telling us that the kingdom shall come. And he says, even the first dominion. Now, I'm not sure who to take here, which way. There is a connection to both the theocratic kingdom under Israel When they entered into the promised land, God was their king. But also, later on, as David became their king, there is typological connection to David's kingdom and Solomon's kingdom for that matter, but primarily David's kingdom. And when he he says, even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. In other words... As we have been pointing out previously, and we'll do so again today, that frequently throughout in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, God makes a comparison between the first exodus and the future exodus. In other words, the the former deliverance of God's people from Egypt and how God will yet deliver his people in the future. And it's going to happen. So, with that in mind, we said these words, the word come, the word kingdom, the word dominion, are all in close connection with each other. They don't say it exactly in the right same words, but as far as I know, it's the only place in all the Old Testament that you'll find such a connection of of words and in connection with the future coming of the Lord and the establishing of his people under his rule. Now, in verse 1, he makes a connection here, though, with the latter days. He says, in the last days, it shall come to pass. So this is something that is yet to happen. It's going to come 
in the last days. Um, You'll notice also with this kingdom, he says there will be a new temple. He says there's going to be uh, this mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains. There will be a place for them to worship because he says at the end of verse 1, and people shall flow unto it. Well, we already know that Ezekiel has told us that there will be a new temple in the millennium. And the people will flow to that temple. There they will worship the Lord. And then um, also he says, um, and by the way, this people, he's, you know, all, all that means, if you look in Strong's Dictionary, it means, um, it can mean a tribe. And he's speaking, of course, here contextually, specifically about Israel and the tribes of Israel. And then further, Gentiles are going to be converted and they too will come and they're going to say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob in verse 2. So peoples from all over the earth are going to be flowing to this one spot, this one place on earth. You know, I was thinking about that, you know, the other day, and well, and yesterday too, about when the astronauts lifted off from this planet and they took off for the moon, which was several years ago now, and you know, everybody was excited about this thing about, you know, going to the moon. So all the focus was this way, forward to the moon. Until they got up in space, and then they decided, well, wait a minute, let's turn around and look back towards the earth. And all of the astronauts, they had recorded them, of course, many, many years later. You could just tell by watching the video, they were, they were old folks now. And they were all struck in awe as they looked back at the earth. The moon, all of a sudden, just didn't mean quite as much as it did when they looked back, at, looked back at the earth. Now, we've all seen, in this day and age, multitudes of pictures of the earth from outer space. You know, and when you really think about it, you look back at that earth, and you look back at that, well, from certain angles and certain pictures they've taken, you can see that there's this, this from outer space, it looks like this little thin bubble around the earth. It's our atmosphere. Which, if we didn't have, would not enable us to have life here on earth. And if you get far enough away from the earth, and you began to look at it in relationship to the rest of the universe, and you think, wow, Of all the places in all the universe, here's this little little globe floating around in the universe, and it has this unique little atmosphere around it that God has placed here for us to have life. And you know, anytime men get in a rocket ship and they leave this earth and they go into outer space, 
In order to survive, they have to take a little bit of the earth with them. They have to take that atmosphere. They take it in the rocket ship or they have to take it in the spacesuit. I always just find that fascinating. So here they go, you know, they're out walking around on the moon, but they've got a little piece of the earth out here on the moon in order to enable them to walk around there. Life can't exist apart from where God designed and placed us right here. And of course, that little atmosphere, Scripture calls the heavens. Now, <clears throat> I get off there. Come back to where I am. Um, verse 7 of chapter 4. Verse 7 says, I will make her that's limping a remnant and her that was cast off a strong nation for the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion henceforth even forever. So this image that we see of the Lord reigning and the announcement that the kingdom shall come gives us a clear picture here of what he's talking about regarding the future coming of the Lord's kingdom. So look at, do yeah, let's do this. Um, Jeremiah, I, I want us to see this again. Now we've, we've gotten close to the, some of these verses here, and some we've looked at a part of them, but we haven't read these together. At least I don't remember that we did. So I want us to do that. Because I, I don't know, I, it just ha, has struck me the constant continual connection of the former exodus and how Israel is brought to bear year after year after year in the Passover. And you and I, in communion, when we remember the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins, just as it took place, at the Passover, and how God makes that connection as a reminder as to what he's going to do with finality in the future. He built all of that up as a type, as a picture, to keep before us what is yet to come. Of course, on a much grander scale and a much more elaborate scale than we could ever dream that's in this type. But in Jeremiah chapter 16, verses 14 and 15, in actuality, you know, he's, he's talking about the sins of Judah in this chapter, and in verse 13, just to kind of set the tone for it without reading all the rest of it, he says, therefore, will I cast you out of this land into a land that you know not, neither you nor your fathers, and there shall you serve other gods day and night where I will not show you favor. Wow, that's, a, that's an incredible thing. And God's not showing them favor in that respect yet today, except as they would acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ. 
as their Redeemer. But in verse 14, he says, Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that it shall no more be said, the Lord liveth, that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Well, you see, that's what they do today. That's their memory. That is their great hope, is when they look back and say, well, the Lord brought us out one time. What about this promise that he made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob? Is he going to bring it to pass on a permanent basis? And with great hope, looking back to Egypt, they say, yes. That is, those of faith say, yes. He's going to do it again. And I will stake my faith and my hope in Jehovah God, Yahweh, that he will yet do it once again. And it will happen just as sure as he said it would, and it will be permanent, and we will be in the land, and no more worries about those around us attacking us, harassing us, and causing us trouble, that we will live in this land in peace. Consequently, verse 15, but, the, but he says, and notice those epithets, the Lord liveth. You remember what we talked about earlier in Jeremiah? where he says they go around saying, the Lord liveth, but he says, their heart's far from me. They don't speak the truth when they say the Lord liveth. But this is the Lord speaking here. He says, one day they're going to say the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from the lands whither he had driven them. And I will bring them again into their land that I gave unto their fathers. So the uniqueness of that is, is they're going to be coming out of the land of the north now. They're coming out of the scattered countries where God has put them today, and they're going to occupy that land on a permanent basis. And not just on a permanent basis, but with absolute peace. No threat of of rocks being thrown at their people, missiles being shot from the Gaza Strip, Scud missiles flying in from who knows where, and all the rest of the prophetic elements that talk about those nations from the north that are going to one day make their move down upon Israel and threaten her with extinction. But of course, we know the outcome, don't we? We know the wonderful outcome that God is going to bring his Messiah, he's going to deliver his people. And and, and and miracles far greater than they ever saw back there in Egypt when he brought them out of Egypt. Turn just a few pages over to chapter 23. Jeremiah chapter 23. And... Let's read a few verses there. Verse 1, he says, Woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pastures, saith the Lord. Now that's quite a denunciation. The word pastors, 
we might know as translated in other places as sheep or shepherds, I'm sorry. The shepherds of the sheep, the pastors or the leaders, the shepherds who were speaking falsely about the Lord's word and misdirecting his people, telling them lies. He says, woe to them. Now, anytime I'm reading out of the prophets, constantly in my mind, I'm always making a comparison to where we are today. Because I see no difference. All of this is a type and a picture for where we are and what will yet to be when the Lord comes to deliver his people and place them into this land of promise and fulfill his word. He says, verse 2, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel against the pastors that feed my people, you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit you. I will visit upon you the evil of your doings, saith the Lord, and I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries whither I have driven them, and will bring them again to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. And I will set up shepherds. There we go. We have the same word that's translated pastors earlier. I will set up shepherds over them, which shall feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. Verse 5. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. Jeremiah just takes it a little farther than Micah did, and he identifies for us a little clearly, more clearly, where this king is coming from. In his days, Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely, and this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord, our righteousness. Now, verses 7 and 8. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that they shall no more say, The Lord liveth, which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but rather the Lord liveth, which brought up and which led the seed of the house of Israel, out of the north country, and from all countries whither I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. Now that's pretty plain language, and that is pretty clear as to what the Lord's intent is. God is going to deliver his people, and he is going to do so in such a mighty and miraculous fashion. And when Jesus told his disciples to pray, thy kingdom come, or may thy kingdom come, they, I think, understood exactly what the implications were behind that prayer. Because every Jew was looking for that ultimate and final deliverance of the Lord's kingdom. We saw it happen once back in Exodus, But our people deviated from the Lord. They forsook him, 
and they had left him, and God had punished them by sending them off into exile. Only a remnant had come back to Israel. The rest were still in exile and have been there for hundreds of years. Some live right here in our country, right here in our city. They're not in Israel. But that is going to change. And God is going to bring his people into his land. And he will permanently place them there. Now, just a small reference here. We said, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we know that there's coming a city that is going to come down out of the heavens, apparently to hover right above the earth, that will be a heavenly city, in which we will have access. And in that coming down of that new Jerusalem, we're going to see a, as it were, and I'm thinking back here now to that picture, earth floating through space, this, this little bubble that we have to live in of heaven and earth being united together. God's ultimate plan to bring heaven and earth together in such a manner, I'm not, and obviously this is a big sweeping statement here, so don't, uh, don't think there aren't a lot of details to be filled out underneath that. But his ultimate plan to bring heaven and earth together. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ dwelling in that city, that new Jerusalem, in which you and I, New Testament-wise, will have access to and will share in the rule of Christ, which, how do I want to say that? It's all from uh, 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 it's all from a, a heavenly perspective. In other words, I'm trying to say that when all of this comes to pass, and all of these singular events, here we're talking more specifically about Israel. But he does include the Gentiles in that. It isn't until we get to the New Testament that this whole aspect of Gentile involvement and people like us are included in this great plan of God and this heavenly city. There is a heavenly portion and there is an earthly portion to this kingdom. When we pray, thy kingdom come, and boy, I wish I had time to go a little farther, but time's going now. 
But when we, I just want to end by saying when we pray, let's just remember what the background to Israel is, what has been revealed to you and I, what Jesus revealed to his disciples regarding his coming and his presence, and what God revealed to the Apostle Paul and the coming of the church and the uniting together of Jew and Gentile in one new man in Christ for those who believe in him and what will take place in that future rule over the earth, that future reign, that future kingdom, and the participation that you and I get to enjoy in it. Sharing in the rule of Christ from the heavens. I mean, that's just exciting days. Exciting days to think about what is yet to come. And I want to be ready for it. And I know you do too. And I hope that seeing these things and seeing what the Lord has said he will do in the future as a future deliverance, as a future shedding of, well, we've had the blood shed. The Passover blood has already been shed in the Lord Jesus Christ, but we have a future temple that's yet to come. We have a future reign of the Lord Jesus that is yet to come. We have a future city in which to dwell that is yet to come. Those things haven't happened yet. But we look forward to them with great anticipation and participation. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we thank you for bringing to us the wonderful truths that you've promised to do for your people Israel and how you have determined that you would include the Gentiles And then, as you have inaugurated that kingdom through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his first coming and in his death on the cross, this Lamb of God that shed his blood for us. And then yet, Father, the future crown in which he will rule this earth and come again. Let our hearts be moved to give ourselves over to preparation for that day. Even as as the prophets in their day sought to move Israel to avoid having to go into exile and having their sins punished because of their disobedience. So, Father, let us be preparing ourselves for that coming day and that coming judgment. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.